quite vicious and she says some really ugly things and she behaves in really ugly ways. She's yeah, she's very frank. There are things she says in the in the play that I, I couldn't repeat on Nitroville Radio, I'm sure. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. So we start each episode with that pseudo-film noir opening, but we all know where film noir itself starts, in Germany in the 1920s. Yeah, it's the German Expressionist episode, and I'll talk to the authors of two books about works from that time that took a long time to be appreciated. Pamela Hutchinson on the now-famous Pandora's Box with Louise Brooks, and Henry Nicolella on the still-quite-obscure Frank Wisbar. But don't let Nitrateville Radio fall into obscurity, only to be discovered 50 years later. Subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. And if you have a chance, leave us a review at iTunes to help other people discover it and fall into our dark, shadowy world of crime and despair, too. Thanks. We all know the basic story behind Pandora's box. Louise Brooks fled Hollywood for a dark tale of sexual obsession in Germany and traded rising stardom for cinephile immortality. It's the story of a kind of naive seductress, Lulu, whose beauty leads a string of men to their dooms. But unlike so many such films, or indeed the Frank Vedican plays it's based on, G.W. Papp's film doesn't seem to blame Lulu for the follies of male lust. That, and Brooks' lively performance, make it a film decades ahead of its time. Pamela Hutchinson, who writes for Sight and Sound and The Guardian, and has the Silent London website, has written a book on the making of, and meaning of, Pandora's Box for the British Film Institute's Film Classic series, past editions of which have ranged from Richard Schickel on Double Indemnity to Salman Rushdie on The Wizard of Oz. I asked her first about how she got the assignment to write for this series. Oh, and we do assume that everyone has seen Pandora's Box, so be aware that our conversation is full of spoilers. Okay, so the BFI Film Classic series has been going, I think it's been going for 25 years, which it seems like a long time. They started out, um, some of the people that were asked to contribute to them, they weren't necessarily film scholars or film academics, they were slightly, there were some offbeat choices. And I think that in many ways I was chosen in that kind of way because I'm a blogger and a journalist, not an academic. You know, some people write about the book that they've been studying for 10 years or teaching for 10 years. Whereas I was asked in quite an informal way to suggest a film. And sometimes your first idea is your best idea. I said Pandora's Box and then I slept on it and I realised it was the only film to do. So it was one that they had not done, but they were they were eager 
to uh, include in the series? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the protest is, you know, we had this informal discussion where they said, well, that sounds good, but you have to actually uh, do a formal proposal. And at that point, you have to sort of explain why a film is a classic. And it's quite difficult, isn't it? If you have to explain why it's a classic, it probably isn't. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, they obviously agreed with me that it was not only a classic film, but a film that could benefit from this kind of treatment, that sort of in-depth study. I mean, I guess it really starts with the Frank Vatikand plays that it's based on. Who was who was Vatikand's Lulu, as distinct from Paps? I mean, Vatikand's Lulu, I think, is so much more of a monster. And I, I don't want to suggest that Vatikand doesn't say that she's a monster because of society. He very much says, you know, if you're a beautiful woman in a society like this, then people will reduce your worth down to money. And that's what happens to Lulu. But Lulu is quite vicious and she says some really ugly things and she behaves in really ugly ways. She's, you know, she's very frank. There are things she says in the, in the play that I, I couldn't repeat on Nitroville Radio, I'm sure. <laughs> and when Pabst gets hold of the character and he will have, he put on the, the play before, you know, he tried to film it once before, you know, he knew it well. When he gets hold of Lulu for this film, he obviously decides to present her in a much more sympathetic light uh, yeah, obviously there are things that Lulu does in the film that are still pretty horrendous, but she's treated with so much more dignity. The film's really quite squeamish amongst Pab's films about violence and about sex work and things like that. And he has this natural Lulu who's a sort of spirit of the age. She's half a Weimar modern woman, you know, and she's half kind of almost like an ethereal sprite in some ways. And Louise Brooks was completely on board with this, whether she discussed it with him or not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the sense I get um, is, I mean, at times she's manipulative, but that's the world she's in. Mm -hmm. Every Everyone is. And there's a real innocent quality to her. Even when she's manipulating uh, the Fritz Kortner character, she's doing it basically by mm -hmm. throwing a three-year-old's tantrum. You know, she's laying on the floor, <laughs> kicking her legs up and crying. And, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's a quote uh, that you you include in the book from Brooks where she says I played Paps Lulu and she isn't a destroyer of men like Vedicans. she's just the same kind of nitwit that I am <laughs> yeah I mean she's a rebel you know and she's trying to find a, her way in this world it's very constrained the role if you're a Lulu you know you do have a very constrained life she's just trying to get what she can and compared to Vedicans Lulu she doesn't revel in her crimes. you know she moves on to the next thing well, and I think there's, it's always kind of seemed to me, and I could be wrong about this because for one reason I haven't actually read Vedekin's plays, but it seems like, I mean, there's really something kind of nasty and ugly toward women in his uh, plays. I mean, he's t he's telling a story about their commoditization, but at the same time he seems to, mm. he seems to be reveling in it a, a bit too, uh, too, close to home. Brooks's Lulu and Pap's Lulu, it isn't hateful toward women. It's it's very much about you know, it's all, I mean like Jane Austen and or any number of people, you know, here are the rules, mm -hmm. women didn't make them. Here's where how much room they have to operate. How do they make what they have to make out of the world as it is? That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And actually the the Jane Austen comparison is perfect. If you think that any of the women in this film or films sort of set in this world act in a strange way you can look at the rules and you can see why they're doing it you know at the beginning of the film 
assurance says to Lulu that he will cut off the relationship. And so she just has to get back into the financial security that that is being shown to love her. And she has to avoid uh, ending up with Shigolch. And, well, we all know what happens. <laughs> right. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, her her paths are, are pretty clear. Either she, she marries money mm-hmm. or she's going to be, you know, working for it uh, as a streetwalker. And there's not much middle mm-hmm. ground there. Um, an interesting thing you brought up. I mean, you know, she's seen as sort of, you know, this is sort of the Weimar decadence version of Lulu, um, in which case the society is more openly decadent than it was in Vatican's time. I mean, he's really kind of talking about an underworld. Mm-hmm. Um, but you talk about a, mm-hmm. a thing that I had not heard of called girl culture in German culture yeah. at the time. So tell, tell me about that. Well, if you can just imagine a chorus line in a Hollywood musical or the Tiller Girls on stage or a kind of saucy review, this is just this idea that you'd have stage shows full of beautiful young women and that, you know, getting on stage and performing as part of these kind of quite quite risque, quite modern shows, um, that would be a great step up for a young woman. You know, you could be you could be anyone. You could be, you know, Barbara from Nowheresville and you could get yourself on stage and you could have, you know, your pick of princes and dukes to to marry and and particularly the style of this kind of show you know when we talk about chorus lines and that it all felt very um machine age it felt very american it felt very modern so many many german critics sort of hated this kind of thing and you know the establishment were very against it that's exactly the kind of show that lulu takes part in actually and she does exemplify the kind of young woman who's saying you know well i may not have come from the right background but if i get famous in this kind of egalitarian way, then who knows, you know, I might end up marrying a newspaper editor or a Marquis. Well, and the other part of it is that girl mm. culture can exist because a lot of men are gone. A lot of men were killed. So women mm. have to find their own yeah. way in this world and they create a kind of culture of their own that is not dependent on... Marriage and kids. Yeah, yeah, and when Shun calls for a... Uh, for a, a dictionary or an encyclopedia from his son, he wants the letter K, which in Germany is, you know, Kinderkuka, the, uh, you know, kitchen, yeah. children, and church, the traditional roles of women. Yeah. And girl culture is, mm-hmm. is a world in which, you know, the men who made all that happen don't exist. They're dead already. And and he's left the older men, the establishment men who didn't go to the front. So you're left with Shun rather than our, you know, you're not going to meet a nice young man and start a family. You're going to have the, you're going to find a patron. That's, that's the kind of chap you're more likely to meet. So yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult place. And the new women are doing what they can. Older men in particular, when she, after she's shot, mm-hmm. uh, Schoen, Fritz Kurtner's character, he, you know, she's in this world that's nothing but, you know, crusty old guys with big walrus mustaches mm-hmm. and, and long black suits. <laughs> at the same time, of course, you know, she can just wink at the prosecutor and sort of make him stumble over his lines. So she has a certain power yeah. from being young and beautiful. But, you know, power is clearly mainly on the side of you know, 100 old guys in a courtroom. Yeah, exactly. And it's the, it's the old guys in the courtroom who are scared of and trying to diminish the power she does have, her sort of beauty, by making the reference to Pandora. They're suggesting in some way that her youth and her beauty, which are obviously fleeting, are in some way going to demolish the power that they have. And uh, it's only going to be a temporary break at best, really. 
Yeah, which, you know, is interesting. I mean, we're at the beginning of kind of pop culture in the 1920s here, mm-hmm. but, I mean, that's so much of what has happened. I mean, we we, we saw pop, pop culture give power to youth and beauty over the 20th century in a way that it had never had before. So they're not wrong to sense a, a, a challenge <laughs> to their power there. Um, let's talk about Paps bringing Brooks to Germany for this film. I guess he had seen her in Howard Hawks, A Girl in Every Port, where she was the woman that the two tough sailors in the movie are competing over. It's said that he saw her first in A Girl in Every Port. I mean, Thomas Gladys, who I'm sure you know very well, who knows more about Louise Brooks than anyone alive, so he's not entirely sure whether it was that film. But a lot of the films she played in Silent Hollywood were were women who were sort of cheaters and boyfriend stealers. And she's very, very believable in those roles. And not many... Not many women can pull it off in quite such a way. She will go after someone's trap just for fun. And in A Girl in a Report, obviously, she plays both guys off each other, and she's very manipulative, and she's very deceitful about who she is. And, yeah, of course, you know, it's a fun film. So she can play the dark side as well as playing the kind of glitzy, glass, um, glitzy glam slapper type. Yeah. Well, and it, it's interesting. It points to something, you know, the, you're talking about her playing the two male characters off of each other. And you and you point out in the book that that's a constant thing in Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. Anybody who has the yeah. hots for Lulu at that second and is thinking of acting on them is going to find her suddenly sort of jumping outside the couple to make eyes at, a, at another person and you know, and is going to be constantly frustrated. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's entirely frustrating and she's always distracted, you know, in that first scene. She's telling, I mean, one thing that she doesn't want to do, you know, if she's trying to keep Shern with her is to, to distract her attention. But, you know, she's the one who gets distracted by the sound of the dog barking on the balcony and just happens to give away that she got she's there. It's like she can't help but uh, destroy people's illusions that she might be solely there. Right, which is also a way of seducing without actually going through with it in the end. I mean, she's she's yeah. very good at, at bringing somebody along so far to where they, you know, she has their full attention and then sort of skittering off. And you see how people react to that. Rodrigo is a classic example of that. She flirts with him a little. She suggests that she's going to be in a show. I mean, really, it's kind of out of her hands. She doesn't. And you see how he turns against her. Uh, You know, he's much more sort of frank about that. Some of the other characters carry on, you know, longing for her silently. But he really hates her once she turns him down. Um, You know, he taunts her at the show. And then, of course, by the time he gets to the casino, his behavior to her is really cruel. Um, So she punishes him. The difference, I suppose, with Pab's view of her as, as not a monster is that she's playing that as a game which has a certain element of, of self-protection in it, but some you never know how the man is going to mm-hmm. react, and some of them react you know, quite drastically. Mm-hmm. I mean, Shern offers her a gun so she can kill herself to spare him from temptation. You know, thanks, pal. He's the monster. Yeah. What a dream husband. Just before that happens, he's given him the come hither into the bedroom. You know, she's... She's acting very much like a good wife, apart from the whole tangoing with a lesbian. Right, section. apart from, apart that. from that. She's pretty much on board. Yeah, he's he's just so freaked out by her. You know, he's twisted in such a knot by her mm-hmm. at that point, or by his own conception mm-hmm. of her, that, that uh, yeah, when, when all signals are go, he can't react properly anyway, which, of course, is what happens at the end with Jack the Ripper as well. Well, yeah, and, of course, in the play, as I say, uh, the... 
the people that she meets in the garage at the end, the people that she meets, I'm being very coy, her clients in the garage at the end, because there are more in the play, all are echoes of her suitors in the first half of the play cycle. So Jack the Ripper is the mirror of Shern, and actually uh, often was played by the same actor. I think Courtner had played Ripper and Shern together in a, in a stage version of Lulu. So they're very, very connected, those characters. Well, yeah, tell me more, because I, I saw that you said that, and it wasn't obvious to me how um, Shern and, and Jack the Ripper parallel by the time Pabst has finished telling the tale. Well, that's the thing, because Pabst takes off the beginning of the... He takes off so much of the play that you don't see the palindromic structure that the Vedican play has, where all the people that are married to Lulu, there are so many more, uh, then have a sort of reverse flip figure in the in the, her clients in the garage at the end so you know Shern is her destiny Shern is the chap who in the sort of before the film has begun and in fact before the play's begun but we get it recounted to us he's the chap who's found her before she actually you know fell into anything like prostitution he found her when she was younger working selling flowers in cafes and he sort of saved her he gave her a gift and he saved her and he looked after her from that point on which meant basically um, you know finding husbands for her, basically making sure that she was always taken care of. It's a slightly different relationship to the one that we see at the beginning of Pat's film. So, you know, he's he's sort of like the beginning of her life, her true kind of father figure because she got through the uh, and he's her destiny at the end of the film, at the end of the play, the Jack the Ripper character whom she's attracted to but will ultimately, you know, mean her end. Okay, so it sounds like Vedican made a parallel that Paps sort of let's drop, really. I thought it was interesting Pandora's Box fits into a mini-genre of these films about women who destroy men at that time. I mean, Variety is an obvious example. It was a huge international hit, very influential. Um, and I didn't realize this, but Paps not only considered Marlena Dietrich for the part of Lulu, but also he wanted to make uh, The Blue Angel next. And uh, or the exactly. and he wound up not doing it, but I mean that's a very parallel film, but at the same time, completely different because it's pretty much all about the Emily Yonning's professor character being you know dragged into the depths over the course of the film by the woman. There's a good characterization to Marlena Dietrich in that film, but there's not nearly the depth to her own story that there is in Pandora's Box. I mean it's. It's hard to speculate, but just looking at some of the other films that Pabst made, I think he probably would have shifted the focus slightly more towards Lola Lola. He probably would have wanted Louise Brooks to play her as well. So you can imagine in your head, you know, Marlene Dietrich playing Lulu and Louise Brooks playing Lola Lola. And, you know, they obviously seem very different. But, yeah, there's obviously a similar fascination about how dangerous young women can be to older men. And it's just what we're talking about with um, girl culture, really. You know, there was a threat. And, but people were fascinated by it. And one of the problems, I think, with people's appreciation at the time of Pandora's Box was maybe they felt that Lulu didn't get condemned, didn't get punished enough. Which I think is also one of the reasons why it's a film that was waiting to be rediscovered, as I think Brooks was waiting to be mm -hmm. rediscovered. She's There's something more modern about both her and the film. I think with her, it's the fact that she's not... 
she's not acting to the degree mm-hmm. that it, that so many 20s actresses were. I mean, a lot of them were these sort of irrepressible pixies. I mean, I don't think there's anything more terrifying on film <laughs> than Colleen Moore in Twinkle Toes. I mean, she just seems to be on speed in the whole movie. In Twinkle Toes, you can almost see that she's contorting her face into a Cockney accent as well, which right. is so mortifying. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And by yes. comparison, Brooks, you know, there's a certain affectlessness. I mean, I think of, you know, 60s performers mm-hmm. like Julie Christie or uh, mm-hmm. Monica Vitti or people like that. And I think that's part of what made it ready to be rediscovered in a later age. But also the fact that Pabst is, is seriously concerned about women. And that's something that in some ways people just couldn't see in 1928. Yeah. I mean, you know, can you imagine this being made by a director who didn't care about Lulu? And, you know, the film has been adapted so many times, the play has been, you know, has been put on stage so many times. It's hard to care about Vedicin's Lulu, but perhaps makes us care. And one of the things that's great about Lulu's, um, Louise Brooks's performance is not just that she does have this very natural quality and perhaps she said was coaching her, setting her forth with just one clear emotion for each shot, but she's acting in that way, which is a little bit Hollywood, a little bit naturalistic, and the people she's acting against, by and large, are acting in the different traditions. So Fritz Kortner is giving his stage churn. He's giving his expressionist churn. He sees back in some things. But, you know, that's giving you the kind of culture clash. That's giving you the sense that Lulu is something special because she's just living in a completely different world to the people she's around. Well, yeah, the the, the acting with Kortner acting with his back, I thought was interesting. And that was the most <laughs> uh, direct comparison to, to Yanning's. Uh, but he, mm-hmm. you know, he in the in a similar way. I mean, he's got the weight of the world on her on him, his shoulders, and that allows her to to be the the face of youth next to him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's that's a very effective com- combination. Apparently, Courtner wasn't very happy about it because he wanted his face on screen. No. But nevertheless, it works. So <laughs> it works really well. One of the things that I do like in the play. Uh, which doesn't transfer to the film at all, is that, so it's it's late 19th century when he's writing it, and, you know, revolution, the era in Europe. So every so often someone jumps onto stage and tells Sherman that he has to come to the office straight away because there's a revolution breaking out somewhere and no one else in the newspaper knows how to handle it. So there's this sense that this is a man who's dealing with a world in change all the time and he's struggling, you know, he's the, he's the authoritative figure. He's obviously the manager or the editor at the newspaper, and he's trying to manage Lulu constantly. He's a man who's constantly trying to hold back a revolt. Um, but, you know, I think sometimes Fritz Corner's back does that. Let's talk about how the film was received when it first came out. Well, so when it came out in, well, yeah, about 89 years ago in Germany, it was it was big news, you know, because this was such a big play and because Pabst was a relatively prestigious director and so forth and there's been all this hype about, you know, we've got this American woman to come play Lily. Uh, you know, I was looking through the reviews and pretty much every newspaper covered it. It's one of those event films, but the reviews are terribly mixed. They're really, some people say that, you know, it's good, but Lulu's bad. Some people say vice versa. Some people say it's all a masterpiece. Some people say it's junk. It's very, very varied. And that obviously wasn't, that wasn't the required response, you know. And so outside of Germany, it gets terribly cut by the censors in France, in America, in England, everywhere. I think it was banned outright in the Netherlands. Uh, so you shocked the Dutch. But, but so everywhere else that it limped out, it didn't. 
get any good reviews really because even people who were sympathetic to her perhaps thought he was a great artist would say you know don't watch this this doesn't represent what he's trying to do at all so it was it slowly slowly became more and more of a damp squib really Lottie Eisner is the hero of this uh, at one point in that she's the first yeah. one to write about uh, rediscovering the film. There's, of course, Henri Langlois uh, championing Brooks as, uh, with the famous line, there is no Garbo, there is no Dietrich, there is only Louise Brooks, which is maybe a bit of an exaggeration. But, uh, yes. <laughs> um, um, and, you know, the Cinematheque Francaise are showing it quite soon, actually. It's interesting. We're also at a moment when... Um, Two other of Pab's films, uh, Kameradschaft and West Front 1918, uh, they just came out from Criterion in the U.S. I think there's a similar yeah. release. I forget which label in the U.K. Yeah, they're already out here. Yeah, very different films in that, I mean, there you really see his social consciousness. And, I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. that's in this film because so much of it is about the equation of, you know, sex with monetary value. But uh, what do you, what do you think is the link? You know, why was Paps, who seems to have been fairly political, so sympathetic to this story? I think you know, a lot of, yeah, a lot of his socialist values came, uh, you know, not just from reading the newspaper, but from when he was working in New York as an actor, and he saw a lot of homelessness on the streets. You know, he saw it. You know, he saw human stories of deprivation. So if you watch a film like The Joyless Street, which he made about inflation in Vienna. He's talking exactly, I mean, that's very open about how economic circumstances um, force women into doing things that, you know, are morally corrupting or, you know, are degrading for them. And with Lulu's story, it's almost like that's taken as a given, you know, that's the back note of it. He presents something that is sympathetic because I think maybe if he presented all the grot and sleaze and Vedicans version, there's a risk we wouldn't be sympathetic. I still see so many people who say, you know, Lulu, Lou is a prostitute, or she's pretty much a prostitute all the way through, and yet actually this is a film about a woman who is resisting prostituting herself out. You know, at one point she says she's rather go to jail, and at the end she basically chooses death. You know, and it's pretty stark that that's not what perhaps Lulu wants to do, whereas, you know, there's a perception that she was sort of morally compromised from the beginning, and, you know, with Vedicans Lulu, it's a bit like, you know, can you say nothing's changed <laughs> right he's he's very much in that underworld yeah. from the beginning and Pabst, Pabst yeah, at exactly. least has some sense of what a just society should be it seems like I, I shouldn't have spoken so much about sex work and moral degradation I would have talked about the costumes instead <laughs> well I if we can talk oh. about the costumes let's talk let's talk about the visual aspect of the <laughs> film something that I did want to say about the the visual aspect of the film it's uh, slightly overlooked, but I do think, I mean, this is my theory, this is my speculation in the book, that perhaps just trying to insert a sort of hint of the Pandora's box imagery, the mythological imagery, into what initially seems to be a very contemporary uh, mise-en-scene, as we'd say. You know, it looks like a realist film, new objectivity, but there is a kind of mythological air in the film, lots of the backdrop, the imagery and the symbolism in the settings and the amount of smoke and mist that uh, accumulates around Lulu as she meets her end. Yeah, no, and, you know, there's that one costume right at the beginning in particular that has these sort of extra pieces so that whenever she's in movement, which is pretty Mm. much all the time, I mean, she looks like a... uh, like a cubist painting. I mean, she she dances in all directions yeah. with, with that that thing. 
Yeah, it's not a dress for sitting around in, is it? It's a dress for action. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I don't know anything about it. You mentioned in the in the notes I saw what else the costumer had worked on. It's difficult because Brooks always said that Pabs took control of everything to do with what she was wearing, and her, her costumes are remarkably uh, unified throughout the the film and they always seem to mean so much you know he you know she said that he talked an awful lot about exactly what kind of fabric she should be wearing and you know some sort of slightly more intimate details so you know and the most famous thing I think is the suit in the final scene you know where he took one of her own outfits and he tore and stained it rather than getting her some rags to wear he actually made her feel that one of her own costumes had been defiled and she didn't like that one bit Louise Brooks absolutely adored clothes and she really prided herself on being better dressed than other people and so forth. So, you know, getting at this character through the clothes was the perfect way to do it for her. She really, really, it really affected her mood, what she was wearing. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking about it. It's been a pleasure. Hello to lots of people listening to Mitoville. It's such a great site and people have always been very friendly on there and welcoming to a newbie. And uh, thanks. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to talk about it all. I'll have a link for Pandora's Box by Pamela Hutchinson in the BFI Film Classic series, as well as for her site Silent London in the show post at nitrateville.com. And if you've never seen Pandora's Box, it's on Filmstruck. Recent biographies of directors like Victor Fleming and Michael Cortez have shown us that there's much to learn about even Hollywood's most celebrated directors. But if we don't even know the directors of Gone with the Wind and Casablanca, do we really need to know the director of this? I know it's just a trick of my imagination, but how is it I can see you? Where do you come from? From my grave in the swamp, never the heart and soul of a cursed one are filled with anguish to the brim, I appear. Tonight, it is your soul that calls. You can't be there. You're not real. Your guilty conscience is real. The rope you hang me with is real. That's Strangler of the Swamp, a 1946 PRC cheapie starring Charles Middleton, Ming himself, and directed by Frank Wisbar. As Frank Wisbar, he was a rising director in Germany, thinks something like a second-tier Murnau or Carl Dreyer, and Strangler of the Swamp was a semi-B-movie remake of his most celebrated German film, Ferryman Maria. His story... The story of an interesting director who never quite made the top, fled Nazi Germany for Hollywood and went back again after the war, and struggled to have his own voice amid the turmoil of the 20th century, is told by Nitrateville member Henry Nicolella in his book Frank Visbar, the director of Ferryman Maria, From Germany to America and Back, from McFarland. I asked him first how he got interested in the career of such an obscure director. 
Well, I think initially it was through Strangler of the Swamp, which is his, his remake of Fireman Maria, or a semi-remake of it. Uh, I didn't think it was a great film, but it seemed rather offbeat, sort of different for a grade C horror movie. So then I began reading uh, William K. Everson's uh, Classics of the Horror Film. He was talking about uh, Strangler of the Swamp, at the same time saying uh, it wasn't a classic, but certainly was an example of a interesting low-budget filmmaking. In the course of talking about Strangler, naturally he talked about Fireman Maria. So I became intrigued by that, and then uh, eventually I, I got to see it, though the copy wasn't so good, didn't have any subtitles, so that wasn't all that important given the nature of the film. But I thought it was a fascinating movie, and uh, that's what really got me interested in him and wanted to find out more about him and the movies, other movies he had done. So I began doing some research at that point. Yeah, it's, um, he does stand out in B filmmakers because he has a kind of a little bit of an art film gravity and slowness to his films that, that certainly stands out next to, you know, the basically sort of juvenile nature of a lot of uh, low-budget horror films then. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be kind of the interesting continuity to his career. I don't think anybody, you know, if he, if Everson hadn't noticed him, I'm not sure anyone would know he exists at all. But uh um, I you might, you might be right there, though. There's a book called The Great German Films, which has a whole chapter on Ferryman Maria. And then you have David Howe Stewart's books on uh, movies made during the Third Reich, and he has a glowing recommendation for Ferryman Maria. And so and, uh, so they, he, he was mentioned more than once, but probably Everson is the one who got people interested in him. What few people who are interested yeah. in him, I should say. <laughs> the, the very small uh, number of us. Yeah, well, it's very, interesting. Very small group. You you talk about reading classics of the horror film in 1974, and of course that's exactly the case with me as well. Um, I got it when it came out. I was a kid, and you know it sort of raised my famous monsters of filmland uh, mentality toward ho- horror films. Reading Everson's you know much more erudite uh, commentary oh, yeah. and everything. Yeah, what a difference from Forrest J. Ackerman. Yeah, quite the difference. <laughs> Well, and also, I mean, with what's admirable about the book, I mean, it just sort of suggested a bigger world to me. I remember an offhand reference in it to, it, he's talking about sparrows, and he mentions the loveliest of silent films, Sunrise. Well, it's the first time I ever heard that there was such a thing as Sunrise. So, uh-huh. you know, it's already po- pointing, you know, 12-year-old me in other more artistic directions. Well, get, yeah, getting back to, to Visbar, um, what seems interesting to me is, in your account, uh, Dr. Goebbels didn't really like his films all that much, but at the same time, he seems to have respected him at a time when, you know, the famous artists of German silent cinema had pretty much departed for America. That kind of left Visbar as, as one of the last examples of that tradition still working in Germany. Right. I think he wanted to work with him, and he had some hopes that perhaps he would turn out the sort of films that he liked, that Goebbels admired. But for the most part, he did not. Um, the only one of his films that I would say for sure Goebbels liked was uh, Hermione and the Seven Upright Men. Which is, as, is a hilarious title. Tell me uh, what that film is about, and when's it from? Well, it's based on a Swiss book. Uh, it's about... Uh, Oh, the seven upright men are, are, are good friends and also very patriotic. And they want to, and they uh, are asked to appear at this uh, 
national festival in which uh, shooting and various sports and things. It's a very patriotic festival. And at first they don't want to, then they decide to do that. And uh, there's a romance between the, the son and daughter of one of them. And uh, it's, 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 a very, it's a very light, very, very light. Uh, but it's, it's funny, Heinrich Gorge is the, the father. It's, it's got a good cast. It's a, it's a likable little film. It's, no, it's not a great film, but I mean, uh, that was one of the few films that Gerbo seemed to approve of, and he had that submitted to the Venice Film Festival that year. But other than that, you'd be hard-pressed to see anything <laughs> too positive in Gerbo's diary or other accounts about Weisbauer's uh, films. But I guess, like you say, he, did, uh, he recognized a certain artistic talent but uh, for that reason, so much of the movies that would be made in Germany in '35 would just were fluff, and, and he, he saw uh, Weisbauer as a more serious artist. But uh, he just wasn't interested in his subject matter; didn't uh, found it repellent. Well, yeah. Let's talk about Anna and Elizabeth, which is interesting in that it, it's kind of a follow-up to a film that's well-known, uh, Machen in Uniform. It's not a sequel in any sense, but it reunites no. the two cast members in a fairly artistic and fairly dour uh, kind of tragic uh, tin right. story. It's, yeah, it's sort of, the atmosphere is all a, a twilight kind of atmosphere with things kind of half-formed and uh, half-realized. It's a very odd film, I would say. I'm not quite sure what his, the meaning of it is, but it's kind of fascinating to watch for the, the way Weisberg directs and the performances of the two stars. But it's a very unusual, unusual film. It's not quite clear what he's getting at there in terms of uh, the theme. One could take it more than one way, certainly. Yeah, I wondered if if what we can see of it has been cut, because the continuity certainly seems kind of odd. But it could also just be sort of early, early talkiness. Right. I think it, it's missing only one scene, as far as I can tell. Uh, so I think if it seems a little... Uh, that's probably the way he intended it. <laughs> but like you say, it's also a question of uh, uh, early talkies as well. Yeah. And then um, Farm and Maria. It's about a woman who's having to deal with the figure of death. So similar to Lang's Destiny, uh, as you point out, it kind of turns into Nosferatu a little bit by the end in terms of uh, mm -hmm. her needing to make a sacrifice and, and so on. Um Again, for, you know, I mean, for a talkie, not much dialogue. It's fairly visual. A lot of you would compare it to things like Carl uh, Dreyer's vamp Vampire and things like that around that same time. I think. Right, I think you could say that. Uh, there's very little dialogue. It was, it was almost continual sound, though. Uh, there's music is throughout the film. Is you know, it's almost through the entire film. I mean, there's no music. You could hear the night sounds of the of the swamp and the area, so you have that oral sense as well. But yes, it's primarily primarily visual, and there's very very little dialogue. But it's a simple story, kind of a ballad almost, or a myth, a legend. So it's not complicated. Was it appreciated in its time outside Germany? Ah, uh, not especially. I mean, it was released in America, so that those. Very few theaters that were still playing uh, German films at that time. Uh, the New York Times reviewed it very favorably. James Card wrote about it uh, very enthusiastically. But that's that's really about it. It's not like it really played played anywhere <laughs> outside of New York. Very very limited play play dates. But a couple of people noticed it. Um, but again, uh, 
uh, it was it was a success in Germany, in spite of the fact that Dr. Goebbels hated it, and was even urged to ban it at one point. But he did not, obviously. Uh, uh, but outside of America, outside of Germany, it got it got very little notice. This part, personally, he had been in the military. Then he kind of falls into artistic circles, which you say they regarded him with a little suspicion because he came from the military. And he had a Jewish wife, so that was an ongoing problem. Yeah, Jewish wife and therefore also part Jewish kids, uh, mm-hmm, right. which stood in the way pretty significantly of his having a career that would have fully met with Goebbels' approval. What was the rest of the Nazi period before he came to America like for him? Well, uh, it was fraught with peril, I would say, to some degree. He had some friends who were Nazis, and they protected him for a while at least. But he, had not, he and Eva, his wife, did not want to get a divorce, but the, the pressure was increasing, and they eventually had to agree to a separation. But under German law, both parties had to be present for any future hearings, and so they both, they both managed to uh, avoid that. You know, he would claim he was on a location or something. So they dragged their feet as much as possible on it. Uh, clearly, they did, they did not want the divorce, and uh, during the period of her separa- their separation, uh, she gave birth to uh, Tanya Weisbar, you know, her second daughter. So obviously, the separation was a was a was a fake. I mean, he, he would stay at a hotel, uh, and then he would go to his his uh, wife's residence and be back in the morning in time for the the studio car to pick him up. So it was it was something of a fake. But you couldn't do that forever. Obviously, sooner or later, they had they had to leave the country, and and that's what they eventually did. But he was never, even though he was never really trusted by the, even though he had Nazi friends, um, he was never really trusted by them. And he did a film, kind of a propaganda film, really called uh, "Peter Men is Against It," uh, and that takes place on a cruise ship. And there was this was basically a propaganda film for the. Uh, the Strength Through Joy program. I don't know if you've ever heard of that or not, but they would give uh, German workers all kinds of vacations and free trips to museums. And the, and the biggest prize you could get would be to go on one of these cruises, nice cruises to Norway or to Portugal. And uh, the movie, Peter Moon's Against It, takes place on one of these cruises. The title characters are curmudgeon, who, doesn't really, who feels obliged to go on the trip when he wins it, but determines he's going to work during the trip. And, uh, you know, it's just only a matter of time before he gets into the spirit of things. But in any event, there's one scene in the dining hall where all the guests are gathered, thousands of them, and there's a picture of Hitler, a portrait of Hitler in the dining hall, and Weisberg took the picture down. And then later on, he noticed that somebody else had, had put it back up, and so he took it down a second time. And it turned out there was a Gestapo spy poses an extra, and he immediately denounced Weisberg, saying it was treasonous for him to do this and so on. But Weisberg turned the tables on him in front of an entire assembly. He said, well, of course we can't have the picture, the picture there. It would distract from the scene. Is it fair to our glorious leader to, to be just a minor part of a scene? And, uh, and the cast members all, no, no, it's not right. And so the, the Scapo guy uh, backed down. <laughs> but that shows uh, you know, <laughs> how dangerous it was to be making movies in Nazi Germany and have any kind of... Uh, with any kind of deviation from the norm. Yeah. All right, so he makes his way, he and his wife make their way to America, although they wind up being divorced somewhere along the way anyway, I forget. Well, they, he had to agree to the divorce in order to even get his passport. 
his passport was, had been uh, was expired, and he would not be issued, issued a new one until uh, the divorce. So the divorce, uh, he, he agreed, they agreed to the divorce, and Eva Weisbar and the two girls left. And then, once the divorce was final, Weisberg got his passport back, and on the pretext of going to America to make some movies, uh, he was able to leave the country. But uh, they did not get back together in America. Uh, they, they stayed divorced. And um, what was his career? I mean, it sounds like he was he was pretty much on kind of the bottom rungs, got some assignments. Uh, I noticed, ironically, he was up for a picture called Three Russian Girls, which was right. ultimately directed by Fedor Otsep, who, you know, mm-hmm. if I was going to pick the obscure director no one knows that uh, <laughs> that I'm interested in, it's Otsep. Uh, oh, yeah, I love uh, the murder of Dmitry Karamazov. That's great. great yeah, movie. I mean, another another guy who's, he had a, an impressive silent career and then spends the 30s making movies in different countries trying to find his place. And I think he and, and Visbar have a kind of parallel life in in... America being something of a known quantity when they get there, but not really being able to ever really parlay it into a long-term career. But uh, Visbar made it into the into the B ranks more easily than Otsep did. Uh, he did Devil Bat's Daughter. I don't know what else. How did his Hollywood career go? Oh, uh, you know, he, he had some writing assignments. And uh, as far as directing goes, they, they were all low-budget films, very low-budget films from Monogram or PRC. Uh, the Prairie is kind of interesting. That's a little bit... Uh, uh, it reminds me of Strangler of the Swamp in the sense that he's trying to do something a little different with a standard genre, maybe the Western. And that is a really odd picture, both visually and in terms of the, in terms of the story. So that's one of his more interesting uh, B-budget, well, C-budget movies. But the like the others, like he took over from Lou Landers for uh, Secrets of a Sorority Girl, and that's and that's a truly awful movie. That's <laughs> one of that has to be his, easily his worst movie. Very, very, very poorly done all the way through. But you know, he's he, he sort of floundered there, and uh, he, you know, he got work and so on. But uh, obviously, weren't great things in store for him in Hollywood. And then he latched on to uh, Fireside Theater, and uh, that became a big success for him. Yeah, a lot of the B directors went very easily into TV production as the 50s went along. And he mm-hmm. seems at first at least to be one of those ones like Joseph Lewis or Joseph Pevney or whoever. Seemed to move very easily from shooting something in three days to shooting something in three days, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, Poverty Row was, was great training for that because you had to be quick. You had to get a, most for your few bucks they gave you and you had to be very, very quick. So he really found his you know, found a niche there in uh, early television and Fireside Theater. And initially, they were very short episodes, like 15 minutes each. And uh, sometimes it's ridiculous trying to cram a novel, like James Fenimore Cooper's A Spy, into 15 minutes. Eventually, they expended to half an hour. He did quite a few in his early work, um, which unfortunately is almost impossible to see. His early Fireside Theaters, uh, there were lots of horror elements to them, too. Lots of, uh, he did a, one called Vampire, which is a uh, you know, and a number of other others that were definitely in the horror vein. And then after a year or two of that, he pretty much went back, went into more uh, conventional type drama. But it was a big hit. It was always on the top ten. Though Sinek said that was partly because it followed the the Milton Berle show, which was one of the you know highest sure. shows on 
Uh, but it was consistently, and there, were, there were articles about him and uh, interviews with him, you know, in the, when he was, you know, working in, in PRC and monogram, nobody was especially interested in what he had to say or, or his history or, you know, he had the occasional, there'd be the occasional article or something. But um, uh, Fireside Theater really, uh, you know, was very lucrative, very lucrative for him. He made a lot of money on it and he gained prestige from it as well. Uh, I've only seen a few of the episodes and, you know, they're, <laughs> uh, like I said, they're hard to, they're hard to see, to get. And a few, the few I've seen, uh, aren't terribly impressive. Um, but I wish I could have seen some of the uh, wider variety of them. Uh, Library of Congress has some. The really early ones are very hard to find. Though I saw one of them was for sale on eBay in 16 millimeter for $99, but I'm afraid uh, <laughs> my modest budget in doing the book didn't, uh, didn't allow for that. And so he works in American television for a while, and then he goes back to Germany and works in... German TV and I think also movies at that point. So really, well, he made a number some, of movies. Uh-huh. Yeah, and really, in some ways, this is the high point of his career. Even though for us, the most, the easiest things to see relatively are going to be Farman Maria and Strangler of the Swamp from his earlier period. Well, I was able to see all of his films from that period except for the very first one, which is extant, but I was never able to find a copy of it. Okay. But, um, but. Uh, yeah, the, the the movies he did in Hollywood are all aren't too hard to find. Uh, in Germany, when he went back to Germany, some of them got released to the to America, and some of them didn't. So they had to be. I had to track them down a little bit. So what was his career like at that point? He began doing um, war movies. Uh, he did a movie about Stalingrad that was a big success. And he did a movie, Yellow Journalism, called Wet Asphalt. It was also a very interesting film. And uh, I did a few other war films. Uh, but again, some of them got released to America. Some of them did not. Uh, a lot of them are, are pretty interesting. Uh, I don't think any of, I wouldn't call any of them great by any means, but they're all, uh, a number of them were very, very well done. And then uh, I'd say Stalingrad was probably his business success. Business success. He also did uh, Darkness Falls on Gothenhaven, which I think is, is probably his, his best film from uh, that period about the uh, torpedoing of the ship, the Wilhelm, Wilhelm Gustav, after, uh, during the Operation Hannibal, when the, the Germans were desperately trying to uh, evacuate people from Prussia when the Russians were, still, were moving in. So that's a, very, uh, that's a very well done movie. There's a point in the book where someone observes of him that they don't think he really believed in anything. Uh, I think, I mean, just reading it to me, it seemed like a guy who did a reasonable job of balancing opportunism with wherever he happened to be during an obviously very difficult historical time uh, with some general aspirations toward being a filmmaker of quality. Does that seem a fair assessment? I think I think it does, yes. But he, towards the end of his career, he gave a couple of interviews in which he seemed to think that, uh, he seemed to indicate that he didn't think films were really all that important anymore. They didn't rank with the great art. And uh, they were just... Uh, a group of people working together, not even one artist. So he seemed to be a little bit disillusioned. But earlier, earlier he was very much into film as uh, art and the importance of film, but he seemed to kind of falter about that towards the end of the career. But I think your assessment of him is, is I think, quite accurate. So what happened? Did he just go see a Godard film and it bummed him out about what he was doing? <laughs> or? Uh, <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, he, he thought... 
he really didn't think any film uh, could make any claim to lasting artistry in the sense that 100 years from now, people would be would be looking at it the way they uh, look at great works of art from the Renaissance and so on. So he seemed a little, seemed to get a little cynical towards, uh, at least in one or two interviews, he seemed to indicate that. Maybe he was just having a bad day, or right. <laughs> I'm not sure. But uh, uh, again, his, you know, his, his great the films he probably liked the most in his own canon were you know, from the 30s and uh, weren't seen anymore, not to mention they were tainted by being associated with the Nazis. So maybe he was just uh, unhappy that uh, he wouldn't receive any recognition as an artist. They thought maybe nobody else should either because uh, yeah. the film really is an art. Right. It's a little bit like the, the silent movie stars who were almost embarrassed by having belonged to a period that everybody regarded as old-fashioned and, old fashioned, and, and yeah. you know faintly ridiculous. And so they they dismissed their own work. But here we are. 80 years after Farman Maria, 70 years after Strangler of the Swamp, and at least somebody's still talking about Frank Bisbar. Well, his daughter Tanya is still alive, and she recently wrote a play called The Red Dress, which was staged in L.A., uh, kind of loosely based on her father and mother's relationship in Germany. I contacted her when I started the book. Uh, it took a while to get a hold of her, I finally did, and I told her what I was planning on doing the book on her father's films. And I thought, well, she'll be excited to hear that somebody even remembers her father, much less uh, is interested enough in his movies to uh, do a book about him. And instead, she wrote back and said, can't you find a better person to do a book about? He was an awful person, a terrible father, a terrible, terrible husband, and so on and so forth. Uh, but we had a nice correspondence, and she gave sent some, some good information my way, but it was just... I was just surprised at the reaction I hadn't anticipated. I assured her I wasn't doing a, any kind of whitewash out of her father, that it was, it was the movies I was interested in, and there would be a biography, but it wasn't like that was a primary, that wasn't the main point of the book. So I guess she was placated, and we had a, and uh, she's a really a funny, feisty character. She's like 80 years old, and we had a, a nice exchange of emails. We're still in touch. His films are definitely worth checking out. It's a very interesting and varied body of work. I think he deserves a little more recognition than he's gotten so far. But we'll see. Bat! Bat! Not a bat, Nina. It's a bird. My mother! That's from the trailer for The Devil Bat's Daughter, directed by Frank Visbar at PRC in 1946. I'll have a link for Frank Visbar, the director of Ferryman Maria, From Germany to America and Back, by Henry Nicolella as well as for a couple of Wisbar's films, by whatever means you can readily see them, in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Pamela Hutchinson and Henry Nicolella. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And why not join us to chat about old movies at nitrateville.com. It's easy to get there. Just take the old ferry across the swamp. <laughs>